everybody. Welcome to Skeleton Keys. I'm Tori Aitzor. And I'm John Booker. And together, we're going to try to unlock the mysteries of mythology and history in pop culture. Today, we're going back to the future, Tori. We're talking about Afrofuturism. I love this topic. I love it so much. And I'm going to just acknowledge right up front out of the gate, I am a guest at this picnic. I am a guest in this house. I will not put my feet up on the coffee table. I will not spill my drink on the rug. I will be a polite guest in this house because Afrofuturism clearly not designed for white people, for the entertainment of white people, although many of us do enjoy and appreciate what comes from Afrofuturism. Now I hand the mic to you, Tori. Well, you say that you're just a guest, but the person who came up with the term Afrofuturism is a white male. What? By the name of Mark Derry in his essay, Black to the Future. Well, he loves it. <laughs> Loves a good pun. You know, Tori, I'm not 100% shocked because there is just thousands of years of history of Black people inventing something and white people coming along and putting terms to it that make it marketable and commercial and then making bajillions of dollars off of it. So I'm not exactly shocked that a white person came up with that term, but I'm not as interested in what white people have thought about Afrofuturism. I'm far more interested in what gestated in the cultural psyche that produced this. What's really interesting is that the term Afrofuturism came about in the 1990s. But if you look back at history, Afrofuturism has been a part of the African and African-American culture from you can go as far back as Egypt and Nubia and being in connection with astrology. Mm. This is a long history of being connected to the stars and to the planets. You can even go as far as one of our most esteemed scholars, W.E.B. Du Bois, wrote a sci-fi story called Comet. Mm. This is a part of our culture. And I think a big part of it, too, is an attraction to sci-fi or the future is it allows us to create a reality that is not based in our current circumstances. Mm. Say more about that. That's an interesting observation. That's kind of always why I think if you do Afrofuturism, you can create a future where you're not having to live within society that's racist or Mm. society that tells you that you can't do anything. And so I think there's always been a draw to what could we create if we didn't have boundaries? I think that's for everyone, but especially for Black people a lot of times for African-Americans, because W.E.B. Du Bois himself talked about double consciousness of being American and African. Mm. And so I think it's almost a sense of being alien in your own culture. Wow. Wow. I love that you brought up the connection to stars and sun and moon, these very mythological motifs. I'm reminded as we begin to open up this topic of Afrofuturism, I'm reminded of West African mythology in particular with Nana Baluku, or sometimes known as Nana Baruku or Nana Buku, the different names that she's given. But Nana Baluku, for those who are unfamiliar with her from the West African myths, she's the female supreme being. She is God, and she is the most influential God in the entire Parthenon of West African mythology. She is worshipped and discussed in a number of different ethnic groups. The Fon people, for example, are very vocal about her, the Yoruba people. And while some don't worship Nanabaluku specifically, many do worship the gods originating from her. And depending on which myths that you want to take a look at, she gave birth to the moon spirit. She gave birth to the sun spirit and all of the universe, and she is adorned in a skirt that is made of stars. Very much if you see images that have been created of her, she reminds me of George Clinton in Parliament Funkadelic, just with the outfits and the things that cover her eyes and the bright colors. I really have to believe that 
Nanabaluku's presence in mythology, it's to me an early expression of this same piece of the psyche, the cultural soup that produced Afrofuturism. A hundred percent. I think, and we were talking earlier about the naming of Afrofuturism. I think there's inherently a sense, especially in Africa, of you don't have to name it. Yeah. It's just a connection yeah. to the stars. Yeah. It's a connection to that. That doesn't necessarily need to be categorized, but we today love categorization, so it becomes Afrofuturism. But I think it's a deep respect for the stars and a deep respect for what we don't know. Yeah. Well, and it also, I believe it's a prophetic vision of the future of what I believe personally will be something that we as a culture see, and that is a grand new appreciation for the wisdom and thinking and the technology of people from African nations, which, you know, we're talking about Afrofuturism. We do want to certainly acknowledge that when we talk about Africa, we're talking about a multitude of nations. You know, there's not just one African culture, but so many cultures within Africa. And yet Afrofuturism is a uniting of that philosophy or that thinking that exists in many of these African nations that has produced some of our greatest technology. I feel like, and tell me what you think about this, Tori, mm -hmm. we often fail to acknowledge that Egypt is on the continent of Africa. And Egyptians gave us some of the technology that we still use to this day. And somehow, I think we so wrongly have looked at Africa as somewhere that is technologically backward or behind the rest of the world. And I don't think that's a fair characterization. I completely agree with you. I think Egypt has always been separated from Africa. It's always seen as the exception, or it's always leaned on that Egypt was conquered by Greeks and Romans. It's yeah. always leaned on that. But in terms of, I think Africa as a continent has been underestimated. It is one of the most abundant of natural resources yeah. is off of the African continent. And then I think it would be stupid of us to not realize the effect that colonization has yes. on a continent to build those resources, to build that tech industry. That's difficult to do when you're being colonized by <laughs> bigger countries. Right, right. And not just one colonization, but centuries and centuries mm -hmm. of continual colonization from different colonial groups coming in from all over the world. So yeah, I think Africa as a continent, as you said, has been done a real disservice to their contribution, not just to technology, but also to the world in general. Some of the artists that we're going to talk about in our episode today are artists that are deeply, deeply influenced by specific aspects of African culture that, again, gets translated into some hip new American style. And it's like, oh man, friends, we've done it again. We've taken something that someone else has created and taken all the glory, credit, and money for it. It's the American way. It's the American way. Because I'm feeling personally so embarrassed about how much that has occurred. Maybe it's a good time to pop a skeleton out of the closet here, Tori. I think it might be time. It may be time. It may be time. <laughs> Every episode, we like to bring you a skeleton from our own closet that is something we may not necessarily be proud of, but we are just human beings having these discussions. We all make mistakes and we hopefully are trying to live our best lives and be our best selves. But I'm going to tell you a brief story of a time when I did not live my best life and when I was not my best self. Tori, I have long, long been a fan of African culture. And one of my initial introductions to African culture came through a 1990s hip-hop group called X-Clan. And X-Clan, they just had the most amazing dope music. And I just, I loved them. And a, a fair amount of their music was about the evils of white people. And so I was very careful where I listened to it in my little East Texas town because 
surrounded by racism. This was not a popular musical choice, but I even loved more than listening to the music, watching the music videos and watching the costumes that X-Clan would wear and the outfits. And there was this great movement in 90s hip hop where rappers began wearing African medallions. And again, for those of you that are too young to remember this, they were little black medallions on a nylon string that had the continent of Africa on them in the red, black, and green colors. Or maybe it was it red, black, and green or red, yellow, and green? Maybe. I think it was red, black, and green. Red, black, and green. Yeah. yeah. So I, <laughs> I oh. wanted to be like X-Clan. And one weekend we went to the swap meet and I bought myself an African medallion and decided to wear it. And I just want to apologize to all people of color who might be listening to this right now <laughs> for doing that. That was not my finest moment. I did not know better. I had good <laughs> intentions. And how many times have white people had good intentions and still managed to really make a mess of something? And that was me. I was uh, sporting the, the African medallions because X-Clan did. I didn't know anything about Africa. I didn't know anything about what those medallions meant. I didn't know anything really <laughs> at all. And it's a skeleton from my closet I'm not proud of. I can only be thankful that this was not an age that we carried around cameras in our pockets <laughs> like we do now, because to my knowledge, no photographic evidence exists of this. And for that, I thank our creator because that would be really embarrassing. But again, I deepest... need those pictures. <laughs> like I deepest... need them. No, no, no. <laughs> deepest apologies to all my black friends and family, but I have to own it. I did it. I How did, did it, it go over in Texas? Not well, Tori, <laughs> not well. Let me just tell you, walking down the middle of the Broadway Square Mall with everyone else wearing cowboy hats, Wranglers and Justin Roper boots, seeing a chunky little white kid wearing an African medallion it was sort of like seeing a circus clown walk right down through the middle of the mall. That was very much the reaction that I received. And it was the wrong reaction in that circumstance for those people. But in the general scope of the universe, it was the appropriate and right reaction because, again, I, I was a mess. I think you're being too hard on yourself. Well, I respect I respect the movement. Okay. Well, <laughs> I learned to respect the movement. And I will say... X-Clan taught me so much about apartheid and it taught me so much about what was happening in Africa that it did cause me later, you know, in my teen years to dig much deeper into the topics and subjects they were talking about. And it ended up being something that was very instrumental for me. And most importantly, X-Clan taught me about appropriation and not appropriating someone else's culture. And that, I think, is the lesson to be learned in this story, is you can admire, you can appreciate, but the line must be drawn at appropriation. At African medallions. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> How about you, Tori? Did you bring something? Did you bring a skeleton for us? I did. I did. I still have the skeleton. Oof. The story begins in middle school. I have a really good friend named Gabe, <laughs> and we've been best friends for almost 20 years. and. He had a really cool t-shirt in middle school, and it was a Sun Ra t-shirt. Space is the place. Yes. Well, I stole that shirt at a pool party <laughs> because I really liked that shirt. Because <laughs> Sun Ra, who is like the king of Afrofuturism, <laughs> is amazing. Well, I stole that, and I have never returned it to him. <laughs> that... <laughs> I still have it. I still wear it. It's got holes. I mean, it's literally 20 years old. But when I go out, people are like Sun Ra, and I feel so guilty because it is Sun Ra, but it's not my shirt. And Gabe and I are still very good friends. And every once in a while, he'd be like, do you have that shirt? And I just deny. <laughs> 
I believe the ghost of Sun Ra is looking down on you and giving you all the forgiveness and permission in the world for your thievery of that shirt. Please, I I hope he is from Saturn. (laughs) Exactly. Sun Ra looks down upon us from Saturn and he offers his grace to you for that incident. I think he would support that. Thank you. I feel forgiven. If you could talk to Gabe about it, that would be great. (laughs) (laughs) I'm so glad you brought up Sun Ra, though, because I feel like there are a number of people that pave the way with Afrofuturism in their art form that may or may not be household names. And I think jazz certainly already has a limited audience, but Mm -hmm. avant-garde futuristic jazz really has a small audience. And yet Sun Ra managed to somehow transcend that small group of people that might be interested in his music. And it was because his music was not something that just was something you listened to. It was something you felt in your whole body. And his expression of that music had a visual component far before Beyonce made Lemonade. Sun Ra was creating these visual experiences. A hundred percent. I think he's kind of the genesis of so much of what we know as Afrofuturism, even going into, I mean, you see his influence, obviously Parliament Funkadelic, but then you see it in Outkast, you see it in Janelle Monae, you see it in so many other artists coming out. And he, like you were saying, is kind of not as well known. It's interesting to me. And I think a lot of them give credit to him. But I also think he enjoyed kind of being on the outskirts. He enjoyed not having this overwhelming popularity that someone like a George Clinton might achieve. Yeah. And this is, I'm so obviously so glad you brought up Parliament Funkadelic because I know we talked about them on the Snoop Dogg episode, but I could probably bring Parliament into every single discussion that we have here because they're just one of my all-time favorites. But also, besides music there, I think about the work of Octavia Butler, Mm. a science fiction writer and the first science fiction writer to receive a MacArthur Fellowship. And I feel like Octavia Butler sometimes doesn't fully get her due as one of the original voices of Afrofuturism in the medium of storytelling on the page. Mm -hmm. But she certainly was. And she crafted worlds that I believe people like Outcast with Atlians made this really interesting sound that's sort of based on the worlds that Octavia Butler was describing many years before. A hundred percent. I think there's been a kind of, I feel like a renaissance of her work, of people reading her work now, but I a hundred percent agree that she wasn't seeing how important her writing was and would be. Yeah. I think another person, and we've talked about this, who is a part of that movement and as a writer is Amiri Baraka. Oh, yes. Leroy Jones. I love that. (laughs) Leroy Jones. I mean, (laughs) I was reading his essay. It's called, I think, Technology in Ethos, I think. Yes, yes. And there's a part in it. I'm going to read it because I was like, oh, he just made the siren song for Afrofuturism. And he says, think of yourself, Black creator, freed of European restraint, which first means the restraint of self-determined mind development. Think what would be the results of the unfettered blood inventor creator with the resources of a nation behind him to imagine, to think, to construct, to energize. I mean, wow, that's a call to arms. That's a call it to is. thought. Come oh. on, Amiri. I, yeah. Amiri Baraka, one of my favorite, <laughs> favorite people that ever picked up a pen to write anything down, but also is a spoken word poet, just the quality of his voice. And I actually got a chance to meet Amiri Baraka before he died. And it was amazing. I was living in New York City at the time and he was on a panel and I got to go and some people, have you ever met someone, Tori, that you feel like it's sort of a cosmic experience just to meet them, that there's something bigger in the universe, just that you get sucked into this vortex of who they are. And that's what it felt like to meet Amiri Baraka. I can't imagine. Oh, so, so good. I think another thing that I really appreciate about all of these artists that we're talking about is they are individuals that embodied Afrofuturism, that they lived it out. Mm -hmm. They tried to 
create work where they were expressing this idea through their work without, I think sometimes even on a subconscious level. And it's one of the reasons I'm so excited that we have the guests that we have today, because oftentimes mythology, as we talk about mythology, becomes this very cerebral conversation. It's academic or it's not in the lived embodied experience. And I consider myself very, very fortunate to know Dr. Kwame Scruggs, who is going to be our guest today. Dr. Scruggs, and he doesn't like to be called that, as you'll hear in the interview, but Kwame is someone that takes the work of mythology and lives it out in a way that makes the world a better place. And I think there's so few people that can say that. The name of his organization, you know, that he runs in Ohio is called Alchemy. And of course, the mythological idea of alchemy is that we're taking this prima materia, this base material that has been thrown away and going to create gold out of that. And it's such a deep psychological concept. And I'd studied it for years, but I didn't really understand alchemy, I feel like, until I encountered the work of Kwame Scruggs. Because that's real alchemy. That's real alchemy. That's what alchemy is about. It's what it should be. Yeah. So should we get into it? I'm excited for the people to meet Dr. Kwame Scruggs. I am so excited. Honestly, he just inspired me. I'm just so excited. (laughs) All right. Well, let's welcome Dr. Kwame Scruggs to Skeleton Keys. Dr. Kwame Scruggs. Don't call me that first off. (laughs) (laughs) Remind me to tell you why, man. Well, tell me why. Me. You you were somebody who worked long and hard to get a yeah. PhD in uh, mythology. Why? Why? This is just me. Wow. Got you never know who's listening. This is a generalization. As black folks, man, we are already separated enough. And I just remember a couple of times being introduced to a, a couple of older black people who had PhDs, and I said, "How you doing?" I'm gonna use different names. Say, "How you doing, Mr. Jones?" They said, Dr. Jones. I'm like, wow, okay. (laughs) (laughs) And this happened once with a black man and once with a black woman. Right on, got all the respect in the world for someone who obtains that. But to me, it just creates more of a separation. So that's why I don't like to be called it. I mean, you should be able to tell. I'm speaking for myself. You should be able to tell if somebody is quote unquote intelligent. Just because you got a PhD does not make you intelligent. Mm. So that's why I just don't, I don't like being called that man. Because it just separates us, man, to me, in my opinion. I love that. Now, with that said, when I use it, when I have to sign letters, Mm -hmm. you know, to get grants and that kind of thing, I use it then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love that. I don't typically use doctor either because uh, I feel the same way. I feel like it causes people to engage with you differently. And that's not what any of this is about. So, yeah, man. Yeah, it raises expectations. And then. I use a lot of quotes. Uh, They say admiration is a very short lived quality, which immediately decays upon growing familiar with this object. Mm. Okay, Mm. (laughs) the better you get to know somebody, the least you like them. Yeah. So, yeah, man, it raises expectations. That's another reason I don't want to use it. Well, our episode today is about Afrofuturism. And Kwame, you when we first begin to talk about this, You brought up people and and concepts that I had never heard of, and I am so anxious to hear you connect the dots, specifically about self-determination. You mentioned when you and I were talking about these things, the mixture of Afrocentricity from the mid-1960s, and then it became more relevant in the 1970s by uh, Dr. Asante. I just want to open the floor for you to sort of reflect a bit on is someone who grew up during that time and who was working in this culture during that time. Tell us a little bit about those ideas. All right. And the reason why I had to look it up, because I know what you were talking about. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> what is Afrofuturism? I never heard of it. And so then you said I probably knew more about it. So anyway, man, I just Googled it and said it basically is coming from the 70s, the late late 60s and 70s with Milana Karanga, Malifa Asante, when they started Afrocentricity and just making Africa as the center, all right? Because basically, I'm 62 years old, born in 58. Remind me to get to my earliest images of childhood. Mm -hmm. Remind me to get back to that, all right? Mm -hmm. 
But that during that period, man, the 60s and the 70s, wow, the 60s, growing up in the 60s, being a child. But the Afrocentricity really hit, almost for me, around the 80s, but really about the 90s when I got through with school, okay? Because I was working full-time and going to school in the evening. So it took me 15 years to graduate. My girlfriend at the time, we dated eight years before we got married, and we got married married 20 years. But she kept telling me that I should get involved with these people in the community. And I told her, I don't have time because I'm working during the day, going to school in the evening. But then once I finished school, I started working with people in the community. And that's how I got introduced really into Afrocentricity. My Sabrina's her name, man. I remember in the hallway, I was like 30 years old. <laughs> it's not funny, but she handed me up the, the autobiography of Malcolm X in the hallway, our hallway of our apartment. And she said, she's told me, she said, for what you're into, you should read this. Man, I had only read one book my entire life, man, when I was 18 years old. My first class, we read 1984 by George Orwell. My first book ever read. I think the second book I ever read, but my parents gave to me, There is a Place You Are Not Alone. So when I read Malcolm X, Autobiography from Malcolm X, when I was young, everything I was told about Malcolm X was negative. I was seven years old when he was assassinated. When I read Malcolm X, I'm like, wow, Malcolm X wasn't a bad dude. I mean, he wasn't negative like they portrayed. And I said, if they lied to me, they lied to me about other things. They lied to me about this. They lied to me about other things. So then I started reading our history, okay, which led me to reading The Miseducation of the Negro by Carter G. Woodson, written in 1932 or 33, which led me to the psychology of Blacks, understanding the psychology of Blacks. But that's how the whole Afrocentricity thing started. But let me go back to my earliest images of childhood. I was three or four years old, so what, 1961, 62. We'll say three, man, a black and white TV. I remember sitting in the living room and seeing the, uh, back then, the colored people walk down the street, and I'm seeing them being beaten, man, with the water hoses and the dogs and the police, man. And I see the white people on the side yelling, and I'm like, all they're doing is walking down the street. And nobody's explaining this to me because, uh, you know, parents, they don't want you to be all wrapped up in that. You're only three or four years old, so you're trying to put it all together. And I realized it's because of the color of their skin. And then all the images I saw on TV back then, we were butlers, slaves, clowns. So everything I saw, man, about being black was negative. So I internalized that I was less than due to the color of my skin. So that's why I just read Malcolm X and all the, you know, the, everything, the Afrocentricity was just so important. So I could be re-educated, man, because we've been systematically taught to hate ourselves, man. I know that's a long answer to your question, but I don't even know if I answered your question. It's a beautiful answer. It's a beautiful answer. And I think it's important to understand this part of your background in order for us to understand where your work has went. And the work that you're doing now, you are someone who became interested and educated in matters of mythology and Jung and Campbell. And you've brought that into your work now with your organization, Alchemy, which obviously is a very mythological concept. First of all, why the name Alchemy for your work now? Let me go back. Wow, brother, man, things happening today. I got introduced... (laughs) Going back to the whole black thing, okay, man, feeling everything about black man, just negative. It's the wound. That's my childhood wound. But it's the wound that drives. It's the wound that drives us, okay? So that is why I end up creating alchemy so that the youth, the urban youth, wouldn't feel the same way that I did, all right? So as far as alchemy, calling it alchemy, and the reason why I just laughed is because I was married to Sabrina 20 years. We've been divorced five, but we're better friends now than we were married. She texted me today because she's reading this book, Laws of the Spirit, and she came across the word alchemy. And so she asked me today, was that why I called, named the group alchemy? Because this book she reading. I was like, no, I'm named it because of I was reading you. But I just came across alchemy, man, from reading you. But it's interesting. I got introduced into the work of Carl Jung and Joseph Campbell from going through an African-based rites of passage. That's how I got introduced to the work of Jung and Campbell. And that was from the same people that my wife introduced me to. All right. Mm -hmm. So I end up calling it alchemy because prior to the nonprofit, 
I had a for-profit and it was squaring at a circle based on Jung's concept of the mandala, all right? So I couldn't have the same name for the nonprofit as I had for the for-profit. I had to hurry up and get a name and I just happened to be reading something, man, about alchemy and I'm like, hell, I'm gonna call it alchemy. So, so that's just how it happened. <laughs> and it wasn't until, man, it probably wasn't, we going into our 17th year next year, we're in our 16th year now. It wasn't until about six years ago then I'm like, wow, this is the ideal name for working with urban youth. Okay, I'm like, wow, just a metaphor. So yeah, man, I've been blessed, brother. I didn't have any kind of grandiose plan, man, like Campbell said, when you follow your bliss, doors open where you thought there'd be no doors. I didn't have no major plan. I had no major plan for this to happen. I just, it just happened, man. It just happened, brother. So that's a whole nother story, man. <laughs> well, like you were saying in terms of it kind of the organization met its name and you're like, oh, this makes sense. You were speaking about growing up and seeing the images on screen and how you were kind of taught to hate yourself. Was that a big part of choosing to make urban youth the focus? Absolutely. Yeah, without a doubt, without question. Even with my education, nationally known program, blah, 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 blah. I still feel I'm getting better, but I still feel like I don't measure up because of the color of my skin. Okay, so it was without question. I didn't want to see those youth grow up the same, you know, having the same concept of themselves that I did. So, yeah, that was definitely, definitely why I wanted to work with urban youth. Love them to death. Love them to death. And Kwame, for people that are unfamiliar, can you talk a little bit about what the work of Alchemy has been? What sort of work, we say working with urban youth, but what does that mean? What does that translate to? I'm in Akron, Ohio, man, 30 minutes from Cleveland, home of LeBron James. Basically, when I was, uh, (laughs) when I was, 38 years old. I was working at the University of Akron. And like I say, it took me 15 years to, to graduate. I was working a Goodyear full time. After 15 years, as soon as I graduated, quote unquote, as soon as I left Goodyear, planned on moving to New York, didn't move to New York. Got a job at Akron, got a graduate assistantship at Akron U, finished that, started working at Akron U with Upper Bound, preparing middle school and high school youth to go to college. I was reading Power Myth when I was 38, Campbell's and I'm getting to your questions, reading Campbell's Power Myth. And he said, when you follow your bliss, doors open, we thought there'd be no doors, man. I remember staring out my window saying, what is my bliss? What is it that I want to do? Not what can I do? And my exact words were, I want to play my drum and tell mythological stories. And that was from reading Michael Mead, okay? And uh, the internet had just come out, blah, blah, blah. I couldn't find a school later on, found Pacifica. So I was running groups using myth with adults and youth at Akron U, left Akron U after five years, and I was got contracts in the charter schools running groups, working on high school dropouts in Akron and Cleveland. Then I was getting my contracts through these brothers, and I'm like, man, all they're doing is getting the contracts. I'm the one doing all the work. So then that's when I said I'll start Alchemy. Well, what happened was I was a caseworker, and I was just going to the schools doing attendance and tardies, and I asked Carla Chapman, who's our board chair now, I asked her, could I start running groups? So I started running groups in this one school, Perkins Middle School. It was the worst school in middle school in Akron. Well, they end up getting $5 million for after school programs from the Knight Foundation. So the following year, that's when I started Alchemy. Okay, it was just supposed to be three years, man. So basically, Alchemy, we start with youth in sixth grade and end up keeping them till they graduate from high school. Okay, so for seven years. But it's all through mythological stories and fairy tales, man. We uh, hold group sessions. Everything is grouped. The drumming, the drumming. We tell a portion of a myth to the beat of a drum. We don't read it. It's memorized. We tell the myths. We stop at critical points, ask them what resonates with them in the myth. No right or wrong answers. It's all to create discussion and to have them critically think and to incorporate the character traits of the hero into their own lives so that they can become the hero within their own story. I'm going to say in those seven years, really, that first group, we had them probably for about eight years, 28 of them, half we have for like from sixth grade to their first year in college. The other 14 we have from ninth grade to their first year in college. We combine those two groups. But I'm saying those nine years, we probably got through about 23 myths. So basically, we'll get through about three myths a year. But it started as an after school program, sixth, seventh and eighth grade. 
after school. And then our youth were going to different high schools. So what I did was we combined the groups and we started meeting with them monthly, 10 months out of the year for four hours a month, man. And so we had another school that we were working with them in ninth grade, which is supposed to be a 10-week program, ended up being four years. The first group, 28 of them graduated. 26 out of 28 graduated on time. 24 to 26 went to college. Presently, they're like 26, 27. 13 of them had a bachelor's degrees. We got three with master's degrees, three other in grad school right now, one getting an MBA, a dual MBA in law degree. Man. So we got the second core incredible. group. It's incredible. Core group who are now, they're like 20 years old that we started with them in sixth grade. I'm going to say about six of them went to college. And then right now, our third group, they are 11th graders. I'm going to say probably about, I'm guessing, I'm going to say about 10 out of the 20 will probably go to college, man. So we worked with 80 from sixth grade, like sixth grade to 12, but we worked with over 1,700 in the Akron, Cleveland area over the 16 years, man. And I just have to ask, you know, in working with these kids and seeing the successes that you've had, why has storytelling and myth been the vehicle that you've used? Thank you for asking. When I was at Akron U with Upper Bound, one of my jobs was like counseling. And it was like, I was primarily counseling black males and it was pulling teeth, getting them to talk. And then when I read Mead's book, Men in the Water Life, read this book. I read this book four and a half times. I've given this book to over 170. Hold on. <laughs> Kwame is going to bring a skeleton key to uh, to read everybody, it, a key. Yeah. Read this book over four and a half times. I've given this book to over 175 people. Purchased oh, my gosh. You're not, you guys are not seeing this, but it's incredible. OK, so and I keep eight of them on my shelf because I had a dream one time when I was trying to go to Pacific. I had eight of them on my shelf at Akron U, so I keep eight on my shelf. But anyway, it was from reading Michael Mead's book. He would tell a myth. And he gave his interpretation of the myth. First two myths deal with the father-son relationship. Next two deal with the mother-son relationship. Then you got one dealing with initiation through desire, one with initiation through sorrow. And it just helped me to understand so much about my life. And I was just, because it removes you from the situation, all right? And it allows you to look at the situation objectively. Because generally speaking, if you tell somebody they're doing something wrong, it's natural to become defensive. If you tell them through a myth, they look at it objectively. So that's why I started using myth because of Michael Mead. So yeah, I owe Michael, owe Michael the world. He's been acting five times to work with our youth. We'll put his book in the show notes for this episode yeah. also. That's incredible. So that's why I started using myth, man. It's a ticket. And while I've got two anecdotal stories, okay, they told me myth was a ticket. I was working with the high school dropouts in Cleveland, Akron and Cleveland. And in Akron, it was like my last week and we were doing the water life. And in the water of life, this boy is crying. These high school dropouts, now these boys with young men with tough demeanor, okay? They took it upon themselves to go around that circle and talk about the last time they cried. Mm. And I remember sitting, I'm like, wow, this myth is the ticket. And then when I was in Cleveland, the dude in Cleveland, like in Akron, I had three separate groups. It was only started off with maybe four in a group. And then at the end of the year, I had about 15 per group. In Cleveland, I had three groups. This dude was trying to get his money's worth. So I would have like 33 youth at a time by myself. And at this time, Cleveland was like the rank, the poorest city in the country. And so I had these dudes for an hour and a half, 33 of them. I can't get nothing done with 33 dudes, okay? <laughs> High school dropouts in Cleveland. So I remember coming home and I'm like, I'm in the bed. And I'm like, I know I got something to offer these brothers. So what I told him, I said, I said, man, what are we going to do? I said, for the first 15 minutes, you guys can do whatever you want to do. The last 15 minutes, you can do whatever you want to do. So back then, that's when freaking the black and miles was big. OK, <laughs> so so they would just freak their black and miles. Can I cuss a little bit? Can I cuss? Go right ahead. Please okay. do. They would just freak their black and miles and talk a bunch of shit for like 15 minutes in beginning and beginning in. And they would give me the, the hour in between. So. One day, it was his brother from South Central Los Angeles. It was their time. It was their time, their 15 minutes. The brother in the back, he was sitting in the back, and he hollered out. He said, Kwame, tell us another story. Mm. Okay, and I just let man, this myth is the ticket. Mm. Yeah, so, yeah, it's just, wow, it's so powerful. So what the youth share in that circle with us, 
man, it's amazing. But here again, you know, we have them from sixth grade to 12th, and the whole thing is about trust. And, and then also we as adults, we also share what's happening in our lives, okay? But like I said, we're saying that circle stays in that circle. So part of the, a lot of the trust is because we trust them. Yeah. So yeah, so man, it's I'm blessed. I'm beyond blessed. And I, I got to say, our first group set the bar really high. Core two and core three, they haven't quite met, quote, unquote. I'm not going to say measured up. <laughs> core one set that bar really high. <laughs> I've got one more question for you, and then I'll give Tori the last question here. But I would love for you to talk about, I remember once you were telling me about this work, and you mentioned the youth being the prima materia yeah. of alchemy. Could you talk about that connection to that mythological idea? Man, so here again, this is when uh, <laughs> it was our second core group. These We had a group of students that we started with in fourth grade, and they ended up staying with us till 12th. But we were trying to teach, and, and at this time, they were in sixth grade, and I was trying to teach them to use alchemy as a metaphor, okay? So alchemy, with alchemy, we were explaining to them that the alchemists would take that primer material, which is that base metal that most people would just throw away. But the alchemists thought that if you put it through a chemical process, you could extract gold. I would be the philosopher's stone. And so then that's when I realized, man, this thing is just idea. Because so basically we told them that we, the facilitators, were the alchemists. They were the primer materia. OK. All right. They were the primer materia that the urban youth, that society just throwing away. But we told them that the chemical substance was the circle. And they said the circle youngest to oldest for two reasons. Remind me to get back to that. But the circle is one of the chemicals. The drumming is one of the chemicals. The myths is one of the chemicals. The drumming, the drumming, the journaling. And then through that process, after going through that process, they would become the philosopher's stone. And then they would come back and work with the other youth. All right. So here again, they send the circle by age, man. Two reasons. Youngest, oldest. One is it gives them a sense of order. So everyone has their place. And because you have your place, there's no need to be jealous of anyone else's place. The other reason is because it's up to the oldest to look out for the youngest, all right? Because some would say 80% of our youth don't have their fathers in their lives. And so, as you know, with the hero's journey, man, you got the separation, initiation, and return. And like I tell our youth, they don't necessarily have to come back to Akron and work with youth, but at some point in their life, man, they don't have to, but they got to give something back. They got to give something back. So it's up to the oldest to look out for the youngest. Yeah. So so the prime material is just them being the substance that society throws away. But our belief that if we take them through that process, we can extract gold out of them. So that's there you go. Beautiful. That's incredible. I think when we've talked about Afrofuturism, it's almost a way for black people to create our own myths moving yeah. forward, using our past and then being able to create our future in a paradigm that is not dependent on the status quo that is not yes. dependent on our relation to other people <laughs> in working with your youth and creating that self-determination. How have they expressed that? How have you seen that? Wow. Wow. John. Thanks, Tori. Wow. John, you have mentioned that thing when we started. Kuji Chagali is a second principle in Nguza Saba. Okay. Self-determination, defining yourself. So basically it's just about them having confidence in themselves. So it's about becoming a hero within your own story and just believing, believing that you can overcome obstacles. All right. So, wow. Just last week, I had one of our students. He has had him since fourth grade. He emailed me. He just finished his first year of college and he wanted to know if we could get together with the group. You know, these dudes, 21 years old now. I was asking how he's doing. And he said with the whole COVID-19, he said, it's just another opportunity for me to overcome an obstacle, become the hero with them own story. <laughs> so it's just all about, it's about them. They show it in the things that they do, okay, and the things we do. You know, here again, we use a lot of quotes. They all put the quotes in the back of their journal. We tell them, neither thought nor action in and of itself is, neither thought nor action in and of itself is sufficient. The one must be accompanied by the other. All right, so it's not good enough just to think about something and not act on it. It's not good enough to act on it with just without putting thought into it. So it's more so in seeing them accomplish things and then give back. Okay, wow, it's just so cool to see one of our college youth, 26 or 27, who will run into an alchemy youth because all of them have bracelets. 
All of them got the cowrie shells, not all of them, but the core group got one cowrie shell, but then they got these alchemy bands too. And the reason why we got those, because when they're in the circle, they saying all the right things. But I'm like, what y'all doing outside the circle? So we have them with these so that they can remember the things they say in the circle. So if one of the college students will see one of the sixth graders or high school students with an alchemy shirt on or a bracelet, and they always do something nice for them to give back. So that's, wow, that's so rewarding just to see them. Brings tears in my eyes when I see them brothers give back. Yeah. Well, I can't think of a more appropriate person we could have had on the Afrofuturism episode because I think you are defining, helping to define the myth for the future of the Black experience in so many ways with what these young people will bring to the earth and bring to culture. And I don't know, I'm just so thankful to know you and I'm so thankful to get to hear and share with the experience that you are creating in this world. We're we're lucky to have you here on this planet, Kwame. Thanks, man. Hey, hey, for the record, it's not a black program. We got white students in the program now, too. When it first started, we just happened to be in an all-black school. The other school we were in, they had an influx of black males. They happened to be all black. So it's not a black program. Myth transcends race, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, man. Yeah. I'm blessed. I didn't do it on my own, man. I got, got all kind of help, man. Mm. All kind of assistance, brother. Wow. Well, thank you for taking time to do this today. We were thank so you guys. It was okay, so bye. lovely meeting you. All right. So, hey, John, looking forward to hanging out with you, brother. Wow. I know I say this every time we come back from a guest interview, but wow, I feel like the world is a better place because Kwame Scruggs is in it. Oh, gosh. The children that are going to be affected by his work. Yeah. I wish I could go back to that age and hear those stories at that in those formative years. Yeah. How useful that would that have been. Oh, that would have saved me so much strife. Yeah. Well, and some people are just living this thing out in a way that they become an embodied resource mm-hmm. for other people. I think they don't even realize sometimes how they've become an embodied resource, but I feel like Dr. Scruggs is an embodied resource for so many people, present company included in that. A hundred percent. Speaking of resources, we often bring, often, every time, every (laughs) of the times, we bring a skeleton key, a key to the audience, something that we have been into lately or something that we've discovered recently that has really made an impact on us and been really important And Tori, what sort of a key have you brought for us today? Well, you know, when I knew we were going to do Afrofuturism, I knew about it from just like the culture growing up with it. Like Atomic Dog was one of the first songs I ever heard. But so I wanted to do some more research and I found the book Afrofuturism, The World of Black Sci-Fi and Fantasy Culture by Yatasha Womack. And y'all like... (laughs) This woman lives Afrofuturism, but then presents the information in a way that is so engaging and so wide. It helps to show you how widespread Afrofuturism goes. So if you guys can pick that up, like I said, it's so well written. It's such an easy read. Get it. I've just put it in my Amazon cart while you and I are recording this show. I cannot (laughs) wait to read that. That sounds amazing. I don't mean to sound like a broken record, but I'm going to recommend a record from someone we've talked about a fair amount on this podcast. And Sun Ra is just such a fascinating artist. And if you're interested in some of his, what I consider some of his most mythic work, he did an album in the late 60s called Cosmic Tones for Mental Therapy. And this album, it's out there. But it's out there in a way that invites us out there. I'm reminded as I say that about a quote that George Clinton once made a statement about Sun Ra. He said, oh, Sun Ra, that guy is out to lunch and we eat at the same places. And so I feel like that about this. This album is out there. It's out there where I'm at. And so I love, love, love to find artists that were creating something so futuristic, something so far outside the norm, especially during this period in the late 60s when so much racial strife is happening in the world at that period. When, of course, when is racial strife not happening 
in the world. We never seem to learn our lesson. Mm -hmm. But this period in particular in history was so interesting. And Sun Ra's album at, at this time just seems to provide a cosmic lens for what's happening mm. in the world at that time. And I can't recommend it enough. I just, I think it's a fascinating, it's not something to like listen to as you're driving down the freeway on your way home. This is something that you fix yourself a drink, you turn up the fan, you sit in your most comfortable chair, you get your headphones, you put them on, you light a few candles, you turn the lights down low, and you play this very loud. That is the experience that I believe Sun Ra was aiming for with this album to help transmit you to another place, which is what myth does. Sun Ra's music to me is myth set to music. And I think he knew that. He built himself yeah. into a myth. Yeah, no, I completely agree. Speaking of building yourself into a myth, we have been building this podcast, and it is through your help, friends and neighbors. We so deeply appreciate all of you that have been supporting this podcast. And if you like what you're hearing, we would love it if you would go out to Apple Music, leave us a review, rate us highly. This is how other people find the podcast is by your word of mouth. But Tori, there are even other ways that people can connect with us. If somebody wants to, how in the world could someone connect with us? We are always available from land, sea, sky, and stars. You can get a hold of us through email at skeletonkeyspodcast at gmail.com, or you can follow us on the socials at skeletonkeyspod on Twitter and Instagram. You can also follow us personally. Mine is at Tori Yatesor on Twitter and Instagram. And I'm at John K. Booker, B-U-C-H-E-R on Twitter and telling a better story on Instagram. And we are so excited to be with you each month and present a new idea around mythology, history, and pop culture. Thanks for coming along for the ride. We'll see you next time. You've been listening to the Skeleton Keys podcast with Tori Yates Orr and John Booker. Skeleton Keys is a production of Sideshow Media Group. 